Thank you for downloading the Plod podcast, Police Law On Demand, brought to you by 3D solicitors and barristers from Sergeants in Chambers. In our podcast series, we are going to discuss a range of topics affecting police officers and anyone involved in the criminal justice system. For more updates on police law, follow the Sergeants in Police Law blog at ukpolicelawblog.com. If you have any suggestions for any topics that you would like us to cover, please email plod at 3d-solicitors.com. I'm Deborah Britstone from 3D Solicitors and I'm here with John Beggs QC, Barrister at Sergeants in Chambers. The College of Policing, together with the National Police Chiefs Council, issued guidance earlier this year entitled Appropriate Personal Relationships and Behaviours in the Workplace. This lends itself to a number of questions about an officer's right to a private life. Article 8 states that everyone has the right to respect for his private and family life, his home and his correspondence. So I suppose the first question would be, do officers have such rights? Police officers definitely have Article 8 protections, but because they sign up to be professionals and they attest under the Police Act, those private rights are attenuated by the Police Regulations 2003 which interfere with various rights such as political activities, business interests and so forth, but also the standards of professional behaviour to which all police officers are subject expressly requires them not to behave in a manner which would discredit the police service. And that standard concludes with these words, whether on or off duty. So what would be the justification then for interfering with those rights? Most of the cases which have dealt with the engagement of police officers' private lives justify the engagement and or the interference by reference to the importance of public confidence in and the reputation of the police service. And Furthermore, the fact of the police conduct regulations and the police regulations, which are separate, both demonstrate that this is in accordance with law. So what are the principles of of doing so then? The principles of engaging a police officer's privacy rights or his or her Article 8 rights can be listed as sixfold, potentially. First, is Article 8 engaged at all? In other words... Is the instant anything to do with privacy? So, for example, if a police officer does something sexual in a very public place, there may be an argument that this has nothing to do with Article 8 anyway. This leads into an allied secondary question, which is, is there a reasonable expectation of privacy? So, for example, what a police officer does in private with a consenting adult is a matter for him or her and there would be a very reasonable expectation of privacy. A third rather academic question is, has the right been interfered with by, for example, professional standards, yes or no? The fourth question with which your listeners will be familiar is, was the interference in accordance with law? In other words, was it pursuant to police regulations or RIPA or some other legislation? Fifthly, was the interference in pursuit of a proper, a legitimate aim. In most cases, the legitimate aim will be the maintenance of high standards of behaviour by police officers, 
which itself leads to the prevention of crime and disorder. If I pause there, that's because the courts have said that it is only by the maintenance of high standards of professional discipline can the public have confidence in the police service and thereby support the police in the fight against crime. So the legitimate aim is nearly always the combating of crime and preservation of public order. And the final question is one that your listeners will also be familiar with. Is the interference necessary in a democratic society? In other words, is it proportionate to the aim in question? Okay, so what would engage Article 8 then? The courts have repetitively said that private life is not susceptible to an exhaustive definition. However, your listeners can be tolerably certain that if the activity in question involves sex or medical issues or involves their family, that will be prima facie protected by Article 8. In other words, Article 8 will be engaged And therefore, if professional standards are seeking to interfere with that protection, they'll have to justify it. So is there such a thing as private on-duty conduct? In one case, in one judicial review not too long ago, the judge found expressly that there was such a thing as private on-duty conduct. That particular case may not be hugely persuasive and may be turned very much on its facts. But if I give you a much more practical example of the conflict between privacy and public duties, the courts, including the European court, have made clear that the workplace, in other words, when police officers go to their police stations or their police units, that the workplace is a positively important place for individuals to develop relationships and to conduct even their private lives The court in a Romanian case made the point that it's in the course of their working lives that the vast majority of people develop their relationships. So even though you're at work, it doesn't mean that you don't have a margin of privacy in what you do there. And so that will extend to, for example, telephone calls, text messages and emails. And the private public distinction is not so simple as saying, well, that is a police phone, therefore I can't speak about private matters. In the same way as it's not as simple as saying, that's a private phone, so I can definitely speak about private matters. It's a more complex analysis. The feature of Article 8 is that all analysis under that article is what's known as fact sensitive. It turns very much on the specific facts of the case. Can you offer them what an officer can expect to have as a reasonable expectation of privacy? A police officer can be entirely confident that if he or she is discussing family matters on the telephone by email, that provided they are legitimate discussions, provided they're not excessive, in other words, draining them from their ordinary duties that such matters will be protected almost absolutely, as will obviously sexual relations at home or in some other private place. Indeed, your listeners will remember very well the Max Mosley case where the High Court judge said that you're usually on safe ground if you conclude that anyone indulging in sexual activity is entitled to a degree of privacy 
especially if it's on private property between consenting adults. However, it's very important for police officers to note that he went on to say that whilst people's sex lives are prima facie their own business, in other words, private, that had to be qualified by the notion of genuinely consenting adults and not involving any question of exploitation or vulnerability. And so the MPCC guidance to which you referred earlier is designed to minimise the frequent occurrence where police officers are preying upon the vulnerable. And there is a lot of case law directly in the police area of business, which says that even off-duty sexual behaviour, if it involves a vulnerable person by reason of age, mental illness, or perhaps alcohol, will not be permissible. And therefore, the privacy that would otherwise attach to sexual activity can lawfully be scrutinised under Article 8. What about workplace relationships between officers, for example, in the same force? Well, workplace relationships, the first thing to say, are no problem at all if everyone knows about them. In other words, if they're not clandestine affairs. And the reason for that is if two police officers are having a relationship, a sexual relationship, and they work together, if everyone knows, it generally causes no problems, leaving aside potential matrimonial issues. The difficulties with workplace relationships start to arise if they're not known to others. And in policing, the difficulty has been particularly pronounced when senior or sometimes very senior officers within the force are having relationships, normally it is with women, who are not as senior and when the relationship is not made public. And the problems with those sort of relationships often is that if some of the colleagues, for example, of the woman knew that she was having a relationship, for example, with a chief officer, they might not say things to that woman that they would otherwise have said. They may feel that they've been trapped into making infelicitous comments. And there is case law to this very effect. Your readers will remember Fred the Shred, Fred Goodwin, who tried to get an injunction to prevent publication in relation to his workplace relationship. And that that particular judgment discusses the problems created by covert workplace relationships. Other relevant issues, of course, become compromise. If a senior police officer in particular is having a private relationship within the workplace, he or she may compromise themselves because of the risk of blackmail or the appearance that they're favouring the person with whom they're having the relationship. There's another issue about workplace relationships, which is obviously it's unwise for police officers to engage in sexual relations, whether on duty or on police premises. That isn't to say that it follows inexorably that it's always misconduct to do so because all situations admit of exceptions. But it would be a wise piece of advice for police officers to go off-premises and or off-duty if they're going to engage in such behaviour, simply because it will make it much more difficult for professional standards to complain about it. There's been a recent case in Scotland in relation to WhatsApp, which I think is probably relevant to this point. Can you just give us a bit more information about that? Yes, the 
Very interesting and lengthy decision in Scotland concerned a group of police officers who had a WhatsApp group and they were sending each other messages. For what it's worth, the judge in Scotland described the messages as abhorrent by reason of their content. And what he did was apply a very structured approach to whether it was permissible for CID who had come across these messages in the course of a criminal investigation to pass them on to professional standards. The, The short answer was yes, perhaps unsurprising to your listeners. But he made four findings, which I'll just quickly rattle through. First of all, he found that the Article 8 rights of the officers were engaged because the WhatsApp group was a closed group in which the officers had trust and confidence in each other. But he made the point that the reasonable expectation of privacy, which starts with such a group, can be ousted by the simple fact that these were police officers who were subject to the standards of professional behaviour. And as I indicated at the beginning of this conversation, the standards of professional behaviour limit police officers' rights to privacy. The second question the judge asked was, Was this interference in accordance with law? He had no doubt that it was because this was subject to PSD investigation under regulations and the purpose was to protect the public, which was a proper approach. The legitimate aim, this was a third point, he said, was the objectives of public safety. The judge said, if the public lose confidence in the police then public safety is put at risk because the police can't operate efficiency without public confidence. And the second legitimate aim was the prevention of disorder and crime for the very same reason. If the public lose confidence in the police, they won't support the police and therefore the fight against crime is damaged. And presumably the reason the judge came to those conclusions was that the very nature of the messages was so abhorrent, to use his word, that it would undermine public confidence. So the final question for the judge was, was the disclosure from the CID team to the PSD team uh, proportionate? And he concluded that it was, again, very much for the same reasons to do with the protection of public confidence in Police Scotland. The short message from that rather long summary of the case is that police officers ought to be exceptionally careful in their exchanges on social media platforms, even if they are private and not open to the public. And just to add to that point, the Scottish case and the outcome was not very different from an English case a few years ago, where a police officer who was off duty using, it appears, his own personal phone, sent a text message in which he in inverted commas, joked, close inverted commas, about raping someone that had just come into the room. And when he was disciplined for that, he said, well, it's my private phone and I was off duty. What's it got to do with PSD? But the High Court judge had gave that argument short shrift and said, actually, it's nothing to do with whether you're on or off duty. It's the fact that you are a police officer. It's the fact that if you send such messages Even to a friend, there is always the risk that those messages will inadvertently become public 
for example, you fall out of friendship. And the judge said, when you ask the question, would a police officer joking about rape undermine public confidence in the service? The judge had no doubt what the answer was. And this simply serves to illustrate the fact sensitivity aspect to Article 8. That was off-duty on a private phone, but it was reprehensible conduct which justified the officer's dismissal. Thank you for downloading the Plod podcast, Police Law On Demand, brought to you by 3D solicitors and barristers from Sergeants in Chambers. For more updates on police law, follow the Sergeants in Police Law blog at ukpolicelawblog.com. If you have any suggestions for any topics that you would like us to cover, please email plod at 3d-solicitors.com.